Come, gracious Spirit, heavenly dove, with light and comfort from above. Be thou our guardian, thou our guide, for every thought and step reside, for every thought and step reside. Well, good evening. I just had to do that. I like that song, and I know it was, I think we sang it before, right? Come, gracious spirit, heavenly dove. Now that I'm preacher, they don't let me lead scenes anymore, so I, I got to do it once in a while. <laughs> no, it's, I'm not yearning after it that bad, but yeah. Well, it's a blessing to be with you again tonight, and thank you for your prayers. We operate on prayer. <laughs> we preachers do, we do. <laughs> without prayer, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't get too far in our preaching ministry, and so... Tonight we want to look at the Holy Spirit, specifically in John 16. I've preached a couple sermons on the Holy Spirit recently out of John 14, 15, and 16. If you want to learn something about the Holy Spirit, read those chapters. You have a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. Tonight we want to look at chapter 16, and we're going to, you can turn there a while, and we'll read the first, uh, let's see here, the first 16 verses of John 16. And I, too, welcome the, the visitors. I can't believe you found this place. <laughs> but we're glad you're here. <laughs> Some of my home folks showed up. John 16. These things. Now, this is Jesus talking to his disciples before his death. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. Gives you some context. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will re reprove the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Now, a little, more, a little more on this context here. I get a sense that Jesus is overloading his disciples because he is leaving. And I can't imagine, this is three chapters of Jesus' words, basically. And he is just preaching and teaching to them about all these necessary things they need to know before he leaves. And... 
he starts into chapter 16 here with some words of warning. He says, if they're treating me this way, they're going to treat you the same way. You know, the, the principle of the servant not being above his master. You know, the chapter, verse 2 here, it says, they put you out of, they'll put you out of the synagogues. The time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think he doeth God's service. So we have a, we have a mixed up theology going on. There's, there's conflict. The Jews were going to persecute them. The Jews were going to throw them out of the synagogue. The Jews would actually kill them. And it says that they were going to do that because they had not known the Father. That was the problem. They did not know the Father nor me, which was Jesus. And they believed that they were doing the will of God. And I, I, I kind of pity the disciples in this, this setting because they must have been overwhelmed with the sheer amount of information. And now, everything, every checkbox was getting checked off their list of things that they thought were going to happen. They had, the disciples had ideas and ambitions about what they thought Jesus was going to do here on this earth. They weren't just sad. It says here they were sorrow filled their heart. They weren't just sad that Jesus was leaving going back. They were sad because, number one, the Jews had rejected Christ, the Romans were still in power, and now their leader says he's going to be killed. I mean, for them, it was all over. They, had, they left all, and they followed Jesus, and now this was the end. And not only were they going to kill him, they were going to kill them as well. They were going to persecute and kill the disciples. Their world was falling apart. But Jesus tried again and again to explain to them. He says, I go my way to him, and none of you are asking where I'm going. <laughs> See, if the disciples knew where Jesus came from in its full glory, they would understand. And this is not the first time Jesus tried to tell them that. Jesus told, tried to tell his disciples, he's going back to the Father, which was far better than this earth. And when he goes, he will send a comforter. That's who we want to talk about tonight, the comforter. But they didn't know. That was 40 days probably away from this time. And so we can, we can, we can feel for the disciples. We can understand what they're going through a little bit. You know, we, we have relationships that sometimes are severed, and it's difficult. And they had that same, same problem here. But Jesus, again and again, tried to help them understand that unless he went, they would not receive the comforter. And he also tried to help them understand that it's better that they have the comforter than himself in front of them. And that's hard to believe. If we lived and walked among Jesus Christ here on earth, and the amazing things he did, the miracles and the, and the power he had over the sea, when the disciples were there on the water, you think about those experiences, and now he was leaving. It was hard to believe that the Holy Spirit was going to be better than the presence of Jesus. And it is. It's true. The presence of the Holy Spirit is far better than the physical body form of Jesus Christ. We would like to think sometimes that if Jesus Christ walked here in flesh, well, that would be wonderful. <laughs> you know, we would walk right by his side, right? That's what we like to think. But the Spirit of God can go with you everywhere, can always be within you, not, not dependent on a bodily form or a presence. And this was the good news that Jesus was trying to relate to his disciples. And it, it, it's hard for them to understand because they hadn't, they hadn't experienced that full Holy Spirit power yet. But Jesus says here in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart... I will send him unto you. You see, Jesus had a mission for the disciples. 
the disciples were to go and to preach and teach in the earth. And Jesus knew that they needed Holy Spirit power to do that. And that's what he's preparing them for. And it wasn't that true. How far would the disciples have gotten if Jesus would not have left this earth? They were weak. The disciples were weak men. They argued about who was going to be the greatest. They, they wanted to turn the children away and the blind, the beggar away. They, they, were, they were spiritually inferior, you might say. But let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ left this earth and they were filled with Holy Spirit power, they became the most powerful preachers on the face of this earth. And I'm saying that tonight to say this, that if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it will change our lives. They were powerful preachers, and yes, they all gave their life for Jesus Christ. They were killed, but they understood at that point what the Holy Spirit was for them. And so what Jesus is telling them here, when he comes to verse 8, and it says in verse 8, when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And the message to his disciples is that you will have the Holy Spirit to enable you and to help you in your mission and preaching to a wicked, ungodly world that is going to reject you. And that's where we start tonight. <laughs> that's the setting. We live in a world today that rejects the gospel, that rejects Jesus Christ. And without the Holy Spirit's power, we preachers couldn't do anything. We, we are helpless without the Spirit's power to face a world that rejects Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say about the world rejecting Jesus Christ? Well, number one, it says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Another verse in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. This is the wicked world we live in. Then in Ephesians 2, verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world. So what we learn is that no man in this world is going to come to Jesus Christ on his own accord. No man will seek after righteousness on his own accord. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit that a man can come to Jesus Christ. It's the only way that a man who loves the world, a man who loves his own sin, loves darkness, loves the kingdom of darkness. It's the only way a man can come to Christ is through the power of the Holy Spirit tonight. Turn to John 3. I'm going to read some verses out of there. John 3. Thinking about the wickedness in the world, the, the rejection of the world, and how the Holy Spirit works. And I'm going to jump right in here. We know the story about Nicodemus coming to Jesus. I don't have a lot of time to, to read all these verses. Let's start at verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and he born and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. And I'll stop reading right there. What we're saying here tonight is, 
You must be born again. You must be born again. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit tonight. Nothing else will change a man's life. It's just reformation without the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, it's transformation. We reform our children. <laughs> With the Holy Spirit, we're transformed. There's a difference there. Tonight, the Holy Spirit enables the same man who loved his own sin, worked in the kingdom of darkness, loved the darkness. A man who loves the darkness, it enables him to see the love of God. And also to love God with his whole heart, to see the kingdom of Christ. Jesus says here in verse 3, he says, except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And so many times we face in the world, and maybe there's someone here tonight who looks and hears what we're preaching, looks at us as a church people and, and says, I don't, even, I don't even understand. Jesus said, except you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. There is a darkness there um, to seeing the kingdom of God. It's the Holy Spirit that turns the light on. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit that turns the light on in our life. And so this is the setting that the disciples were in. They had to go to the world, which was going to reject them. But Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will be with you and assist you. And we come to verse 8, back here in John 16. We can turn back to there, verse 8. And the three main sections of the message tonight, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And we're going to talk about the, the work of the Holy Spirit tonight in those three areas of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And before we get into that, we have to understand what that word reprove means. And I see you have the whiteboard up here. Am I the first one? <laughs> All right. So that word reprove, I better get my notes here. The Greek word looks like this. All right. That word is elenko. When the Bible speak, the Bible uses this word in many different forms, and it's an interesting word study to do because it'll reveal a lot of things to you. And when he has come, he will reprove or he will elenko, and that word elenko means convict. And not only does that mean, word mean convict. It has a different meaning than what we think of when we think of as convict. You know, we, we talk about conviction pretty easily. We say, well, you know, I ate too much ice cream. You know, you feel a little bit convicted. I'm convicted, you know. So that's not what this word means. This word has two different meanings. And both of those meanings are the legal definition of convict. It means the judicial act of conviction with a view towards sentencing. It means the act of convincing by presenting evidence or indictment. And so what I want to tell you tonight is when the Holy Spirit has come, he's going to indict you. He's going to convict you. And what do we call that man in, in a courtroom setting that does that? Someone said, Judge. Anybody else? Let me, let me say it this way. When we violate the law of God, the Holy Spirit puts us on trial and then convicts us according to that law. In other words, the Holy Spirit is a prosecutor. The Holy Spirit is a prosecutor. I want to bring that out tonight. 
Because the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life and the sinner's life is a prosecuting work. The job of the prosecutor is to come in the courtroom setting and to lay out the evidence and prove beyond doubt that you are guilty and recommend a sentence or at least remind you of the sentence. They remind the judge of the sentence. That's the work of the prosecutor. And so when we see this word in Scripture, think of that. Conviction. The Holy Spirit is a prosecutor tonight. Someone said it this way. The Spirit does not merely accuse men of sin. He brings them to an inescapable sense of guilt so that they realize their shame and their helplessness before God. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus telling his disciples about this, what he was saying is, my spirit's going to do the work. And tonight, that's what's going to happen. The spirit is going to do the work in your life and in my life. The spirit is the prosecutor. And the spirit brings out this evidence, and the spirit proves your guilt and reminds you of the sense, and he usually does this all at the same time. In other words, has the spirit ever worked in your life, and you felt guilty, and you didn't know why? Maybe you have. I, I haven't. Or have you ever felt guilty without the weight of impending judgment? And the answer is no, because the Spirit of God does not let us in the dark. The Spirit of God lays out the evidence, proves that you're guilty, and you, the weight of impending judgment is on your mind and heart. You know you're guilty, and you know why you're guilty, and you know the judgment. The Spirit is, is, does that for us. The Spirit does not beat around the bush or simply give strong hints. It's a convincing power that forces us to own our sin and our guilt before God. And you might ask, how does this all happen? Well, I'm just going to give you one way it happens tonight, and that's what we're doing right now. We're preaching. That's the way the Holy Spirit can use, do this. The Bible plainly teaches that the goal of preaching is to convict, or, convict the hearer. 1 Corinthians 1.21, it says, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And there's many people in the world tonight that think that what we're doing this week is nothing but a bunch of foolishness. But it's the power of God to save the souls of men. And I want to read a couple verses here that use this word, elenko. And many times it uses it in regard to preaching. And in 1 Corinthians 14 couple verses there in 23 to 25. Now the setting in this, this chapter is that people were speaking in tongues or other languages, whatever you want to call it. And Paul is writing to them and he's saying, you need to preach clearly so that people understand what you're saying. Okay, that's the setting here. He says, if therefore the whole church become together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say ye are mad? But if all prophesy, and that word prophesy means speak under inspiration. But if all preach, if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned, he is convinced, and that word convinced is elenko. He is convicted of all. He is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Now, isn't that amazing? I don't know. I think we don't read that verse very much. But that's what the preaching of the gospel can do. The unlearned, the un unbeliever is, is convinced and convicted. Use, that's a Greek word, elenko. 
Then we have it in Ephesians 5.11, and it says this, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, rather convict them. So instead of hanging out with the ungodly, you're to be preaching to them. <laughs> you're to be convicting them. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, convict, prosecute. <laughs> Put it in there, with all authority, or no, sorry, rebuke, exhort, with all, no, I'm still getting that word, rather reprove them. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all longsuffering and doctrine. There, I got it. Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince, same Greek word, convict them. Actually, convince the gainsayers. Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke, and that same word means elenko as well, convict with all authority, let no man despise thee. So we have the preaching of the gospel being a conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. In fact, most of the preaching done in Scripture is a convicting, prosecuting message. Think about the Old Testament prophets. You don't hear a lot of feel-good sermons from them. <laughs> Not a lot of feel-good sermons from them. They preached and they prosecuted the law of God. They indicted, they accused, and they laid out the evidence and they pronounced judgment. That's most of the preaching done in the Scripture. Tonight we want to look at this verse here, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Why did he mention these three things? Reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, somebody said it this way, sin is the truth about man. Righteousness is the truth about God. And judgment is the inevitable confrontation of these two truths. And that's true. Sin is where we're at, but the righteousness of God is. And then we have the conflict, which is judgment. He says here, he will reprove the world of sin because they believe not on me. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin tonight. And if there's any sin in your life, you will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit of that sin. And there's a number of things that the Holy Spirit convinces us or convicts us about sin. The first one is, is the fact that we have sinned. The whole world stands guilty before God. The Bible says there's none that is righteous. And so the fact is we have sinned tonight. The second thing that convinces about sin is the thought of sin. The personal responsibility associated with sin. If if tonight you're sitting here and you know you're a sinner, the Holy Spirit is convincing you that you are personally responsible for your own sin. Nobody else is responsible for your sin. Some people don't believe that today. Some people believe in generational sin and you get, you get a, this whole thing. The Spirit convicts us that you are responsible for your own sin. The Spirit also teaches us of the folly of sin. Sin never satisfies. Sin doesn't make you happy. Sin doesn't take you places you want to go. And so the glamour and what we thought was we were getting into is not what it was. And the Holy Spirit tells us that. It says you're a miserable person. You are living in misery because you've chosen to sin. It's your fault. It's not what you thought it was going to be. The Holy Spirit also convinces us of the filth of sin, the dirtiness of sin, the unrighteousness, and how we cannot stand before a holy God 
and have sin in our lives tonight. The presence of a holy God cannot, we cannot stand in the presence of the holy God. Sin will never enter heaven. So the Holy Spirit convinces us of that. The Holy Spirit also convinces us of the fruit of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death and there is judgment. And like I said earlier, the Spirit does this all at the same time. And if, if any of you have been under the conviction of the Spirit, and I know some of you have been, maybe some of you are, you know what this feeling's like. And the psalmist talks about it. You know, lying awake in your own tears and just miserable because your bones and everything, because the Spirit's pressure is upon you. He's convincing you and convicting you and prosecuting you. <clears throat> There are many kinds of sin we could talk about, and maybe we'll get to them tomorrow night. I haven't decided what to preach about tomorrow night, but he says here of sin because they believe not on me. Many, many sins we can talk about tonight here, but we know one thing, that if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not enter heaven. You will not. That's the primary sin, the preeminent sin of unbelief. And Jesus faced that many, many times. He preached to them, and at the end of his sermons, people would turn away. They'd walk away. And we've given opportunity to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. And if you turn away, it's unbelief. There is no other salvation foundation to build upon if we don't believe in Jesus Christ tonight. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's no foundation to our salvation unless we believe in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so the Holy Spirit will convict the world of unbelief. They reject the messenger of the gospel. They reject the message of the gospel. That's the world. They don't believe he existed. And if they do believe he existed, they don't put their full faith and trust in him. And so tonight, unbelief is the essence of all sin. Do you ever think about that? Every sin that you've ever committed, there has to be unbelief there. Because what you believe about Jesus Christ and what you believe about God changes the way you look at sin. All right, the second part of this. When he has come, he will reprove the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. You see, what Jesus was telling his disciples is, I'm going away. You don't have me to look at. You don't have my steps to follow in physically. But we have the Holy Spirit to convict us, to convict the world that the only standard of righteousness is Jesus Christ. And maybe I could go on a whole sermon tonight about Jesus Christ being a standard of righteousness for us. My friends, tonight, there are many people, religious people, who think that they're going to get to heaven on their own righteousness, on their own goodness, and on their own merits. Oh, they acknowledge God. God has done this for me. I, I go to church once in a while, or I say my prayers once in a while. But you will not get to heaven on the merit of your own righteousness. Jesus Christ's righteousness is the only righteousness we can get to heaven on. Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as, anybody know? Filthy rags. And let me tell you something tonight. When you come into the house dirty and your hands are dirty, do you pick up a pack of filthy rags to clean yourself up? No. But that's what we try to do when we try to clean up our life with our own righteousness. 
We take those dirty rags when right over here are clean rags. And we take these dirty rags and we wipe ourselves and we wipe and we wipe and we wipe. That's our own righteousness. We're cleaning our lives up with our own righteousness. Back in 1860, in Great Britain, there was a high-ranking army officer. And apparently there was a revival going through the town. And this is how he described the sin, the conviction of sin in that town. It's very interesting, and I'll try to read it plainly. He says this. He says, those of you who are at ease have little conception of how terrifying a sight it is when the Holy Spirit is pleased to open a man's eyes to see the real state of his heart. Men who were thought to be and who thought themselves to be good religious people have been led to search in the foundation upon which they were resting and have found all rotten, that they were self-satisfied, resting on their own goodness and not upon Christ. Many turn from open sin to lives of holiness, some weeping for joy for sins forgiven. What he's saying is they had revival in a religious town. <laughs> Men were resting on their own righteousness. And it's so easy for us to do that because the scripture tells us how to live. And we can try to do it on our own strength. And we can look pretty good sometimes. But inside, without the blood of Jesus Christ covering our sins, we are rotten. We are rotten. And we can't use those dirty rags to clean up our life. We cannot do that. And I plead with you tonight, if you're trying to do that, we will give you opportunity to make a commitment. And you don't have to use dirty rags to clean your life up again. But without the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us, we will never see God. And maybe I should just turn to Romans 4 here to establish that fact a little more. Like I said, I don't have time for a whole sermon on justification, but <laughs> we're going to look a little bit in Romans 4 here. Thinking about the Holy Spirit reproving the world of righteousness. It's the standard that Jesus lived here on this earth. Romans 4, verses 2 to 6, talking about Abraham here. He says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. And then let's go down here to verse 20. Same chapter, verse 20, talking about Abraham again. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Into verse chapter 5 here, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. My friends, tonight, it is our belief in Jesus Christ that justifies us. It makes it as if we've never sinned before God. 
not our own righteousness. Not our own righteousness. The Bible speaks in, later in Romans 10, 2-4. He says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, and go about cleaning up with the dirty towels, the dirty rags. That's what he's talking about. Have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Another verse in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Another verse in Ephesians 4.24, talks about putting on the new man, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And then one more in Philippians 3.9, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith, of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And so we see here that our own righteousness is insufficient in the sight of God. If you're here tonight and you're trying to live a life on your own goodness and your own righteousness, it is not sufficient in the eyes of God. You'll come before God and you'll say, Lord, have we not done many wonderful things? Have we not cast out devils? I haven't done that. These people had. And Jesus will have to say, I never knew you. I never knew you. That is, that is probably the most terrifying scripture to Christians here on this earth. That is a reality. That there are people that go to church every Sunday and that profess Jesus Christ with their mouth and they will reach the judgment seat of Christ and he'll have to say, I never knew you. Why? Because they lived on their own righteousness instead of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will reprove the world of righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the third and last point here, the Holy Spirit will reprove the world of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And so we say tonight, on what basis can the Holy Spirit tell me I'm guilty and tell me that there is impending judgment on my life? And it's on the basis of the prince of this world has already been judged. Satan has already been convicted. Satan is already defeated in a sense, if I may say that. Genesis 3.15 talks about the head of Satan being crushed. And then in Hebrews 2.14, he talks about, here is, for as much as then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And then, of course, we read in Revelations as well that the devil is bound and cast into the lake of fire. And so tonight, the Holy Spirit will reprove the world of judgment because Satan himself is judged. And tonight, if you're living in the kingdom of darkness and you're living in sin, if the ruler of that kingdom is already judged, where will you stand? If Satan is already judged, there's no escape for you. That's why the Holy Spirit re reproves you and reminds you of the impending judgment coming if we live in a state of sin. If the supernatural power of Satan and his angels is defeated, it goes without saying that if we live under his dominion, we have no chance. We are already defeated. We have already been judged. So the Holy Spirit will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. 
And the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit is it is personal to us tonight. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your own sin, reminds you of your own state before God. Also, one of the blessings of the Holy Spirit tonight, and we, we see this in the previous chapters here to John 16, we talked about the Holy Spirit being our prosecutor. And I don't want to leave this pulpit tonight without reminding you also that the Holy Spirit can be our defense. Thinking of the courtroom setting. The Holy Spirit can be our defense. It talks about him being an advocate. Him being a comforter, which means a helper, coming alongside and helping us. And so the question for you tonight is, which one is he? Is the Holy Spirit prosecuting you tonight? Is the Holy Spirit advocating for you tonight? You're either comforted or you're convicted. And the convicting work becomes, comes before the comfort. You want peace tonight. You don't enjoy the work of the Spirit in your life reproving that sin and that unrighteousness in your life. He can be a comforter to you if you surrender to Jesus Christ, if you surrender to him. In Acts 2, verses 22 and 23, this is a sermon, probably one of the most powerful sermons preached in the New Testament by Peter. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved to God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And what happened? It says, and when they heard this, they were pricked in the heart. That is the prosecuting work of the Holy Spirit. There are too many preachers today who think that if you preach the truth and you preach the word of God, that people will run. <laughs> That's not the case. The Holy Spirit can work in their lives. Peter here directly accused him of crucifying Jesus Christ, one of the harshest accusations you could ever face. It says here, they were pricked in the heart and said unto Peter, to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And so tonight, if the Holy Spirit is working in your life, I know he's working in your life. Because you've been sitting under the sound of the gospel. And your heart is pricked. And you're asking the question, what shall we do? What did Peter say? He says, repent and be baptized. One of you, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remissions of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Tonight there is one solution to the pricks. There's one solution to the conviction, and that is repentance. That is surrender to Jesus Christ. And I want to open up for invitation tonight. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word to us. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Lord, we pray for each soul here tonight. We pray that if there's any sin in their hearts, if they feel the pricks of the Spirit, that they would yield themselves wholly to you, that they would surrender and give their life to Jesus Christ. Lord, we open the invitation. Lord, may your spirit work in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.